กับคนไม่ไอ้กับคนคนทุนคนทุนDeepwater Initiative podcast series, hosted by myself, Chantal Noah Forbes. This podcast will feature artists, academics, and educators whose work highlights the present ecological significance of indigenous traditions, customs, and former ways of life. Today, I'm joined by Paige Bardolf. Who is the director of the Global Museum at San Francisco State University, where she also teaches graduate courses in museum studies? Paige recently worked with graduate students to curate an exhibition on the impacts of climate change on indigenous communities. She was formerly an associate curator at the Archery Museum of the American West and lead curator of the California Continued Exhibit. She has held positions at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County and the California Academy of Sciences. Paige served as consulting producer and co-producer for multiple KCET projects, including Tending Nature, Tending the Wild, and the Art of Basketry episode on Artbound. The Tending Nature and Tending the Wild series shines light. On the environmental knowledge of indigenous peoples across California, by exploring how they have actively shaped and tended the land for millennia, whilst in the process developing a deep understanding of plant and animal life, these series examine how humans are necessary to live in balance with nature, and how traditional practices can inspire a new generation of Californians to tend their environment. In today's conversation, Paige and I will explore the role of museums and curators in decolonizing and recurating cultural space. So, Paige, welcome. And um, perhaps we can start by talking a bit about the Global Museum at San Francisco State University, where you are currently a director. What makes this museum space unique in reimagining the role of museums in decolonizing cultural space? Thank you so much, and and thank you for having me on this podcast as well. Um, so, uh, as you mentioned, I am the director of the Global Museum at San Francisco State University, and we're actually a relatively new museum. We only opened to the public two years ago. Uh, we opened in April of 2018. And um, it was a really great initiative of the university to unite collections that had been previously on the campus um, for many years, even decades. Um, some of the collections arrived at the university in as early as the 1960s. Um, but this is really the first time they've had this central hub, not only for um, a state-of-the-art collections facility. Also, brand new exhibition gallery, um, but also really a presence on the campus to think about the importance of these collections and also how we can position them moving forward, um, especially on a university setting. So, what's exciting about the Global Museum at SF State is that we really serve as the teaching lab for the Museum Studies graduate program. We're a resource for the whole university. We um, 
serve students of all majors. We welcome lots of faculty uh, bringing their classes, but also K through 12 students from a lot of the local schools here in the Bay Area. But really the core of our activities is giving museum studies graduate students the opportunity to work on exhibits, to care for collections, to lead tours and develop educational programs. And because of that unique opportunity, we're really shaping the next generation of museum professionals. So all of our practice is driven by very forward thinking, very 21st century practice. Um, we're providing an opportunity for these students to get experience in the museum setting so they can take what they learn in the program to other museums in their careers. We have Museum Studies alumni who work in museums not only across the Bay Area, but really across the country and even a few internationally. And the training that they get with us, um, we really want them to become self-reflective. We want them to become very ethically based museum practitioners. Everything we teach in the museum studies program and through their work in the global museum is about, you know, how do you be the best steward possible, particularly with cultural collections? And so much of that involves working with community members, thinking about ethical standards for collections care, um, thinking about whose voice is told, whose story is told, who do you collaborate with? So all of our practice in the Global Museum revolves around um, teaching the students the importance of um, that perspective in museums. So all of the exhibits we develop, we rely on our community partners. Um, all of the uh, collections care is grounded in ethical practice, and it's a really great place for uh, the next generation of curators, you know, the students who are going to be out and working in the field in the next few decades moving forward. They're already coming in with this mindset, how important it is to practice um, these decolonizing efforts in museums. So in the last hundred years, you know, museums have often uh, received a lot of criticism uh, for the way that they've uh, collected, curated, and, and displayed other people's cultures. And you've served in various roles in museums across California, and I'm certain that museum practices have changed somewhat just in the time period that you've been working within them. So can you elaborate more on how you see California State specifically undertaking reforms towards a less colonizing reflection of and on what we would deem in the West as other cultures. Certainly. And you raise a really excellent point about museums having um, a really difficult history. And that's something we also teach in our museum studies courses, is that we can't ignore that history. We have to look really critically on past practices in museums in terms of acquiring objects in unethical manners, um, treating objects with pesticides, um, displaying sacred objects or cultural objects that really should never have gone on display in the first place. And so much has changed um, in the past century. Uh, really kind of the most notable change, at least from a legal perspective, was the passage of NAGPRA in 1990. That's the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. This is really the first large scale um, law set in place here in the United States that I think served as a really big springboard for how museums can start to think about um, cultural material from really all communities, even though that law applies specifically to um, Native communities from Native North America. Um, so 
myself as a museum professional, but also someone who has the opportunity to teach in museum studies, is constantly reflecting on the history of our discipline. Um, in my previous role, I served as a curator at the Autry Museum of the American West in Los Angeles, uh, which actually has the second largest collection of Native American objects in the country, following the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian. So it's a really significant collection of Native material. Um, and I worked very closely on multiple exhibits with um, community curators, Native advisors. You know, I always considered myself less of a curator, but more of a facilitator. Um, I wasn't the one conveying the information. Um, I wasn't the one dictating the story or how it should be told. I just had the tools as the museum professional to be able to tell those stories in collaboration with so many Native advisors and the source communities directly. So particularly in terms of the state undertaking reforms towards a less colonizing reflection, I think the biggest place we have to start in is in the state standard curriculum. And we're starting to see a new focus on revisiting the way that history is taught in public schools here in California. Actually, some of the Native advisors I've worked with are bringing this to the state of California in terms of more targeted education reform. Um, fourth grade in particular is the year where students focus on state history. So for California, um, so much of their education is still very grounded in this uh, history of the missions and Father Sarah and very glossed over. Of course, it's tricky to teach uh, that type of history to fourth graders, but it is really lacking in terms of how little um, our K through 12 students are taught about um, the history of native California. So I think that is starting to change. There are more targeted efforts um, to revisit the way that history is taught in public schools. Um, but museums can also help play a huge role in teaching what's missing from the state standard curriculum. So by having K-12 schools come to museums on field trips, by having outreach programs, by having materials that museums can provide for classroom teachers to supplement what they're getting in their standardized textbooks, I think that's what we really need to start seeing. Um, there are way too many adults that visit museums and think that there are no Native people in California. They know nothing about Indigenous history. They may not have taken a history class since they left high school, for example. Um, so if a museum can play a role in that informal education, then I think that's a really big step um, in changing the way that uh, people perceive this history. Great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the way that you um, are sort of highlighting that in order for our cultural spaces to reform, uh, our historical practices, the way we narrate our history and the way that we teach our history to the next generation uh, is where we need to reform first. Uh, and so, I, you know, being at a graduate um, sort of level of study right now, I don't think that I reflect enough on what it is that we're teaching uh, to the youth on a school level. So um, you've spoken a little bit about how museums themselves and even the classroom can either be spaces of, of reinforcing the ideology of colonization or spaces of affecting cultural diversity, um, plurality and social change. And so shifting from the institution uh, to the role of individuals, um, curators, 
and, and perhaps even um, sort of teachers of, of history, how uh, do you see these individuals as personal agents of social change? Um, I, and I'd like perhaps if you could talk a little bit towards how you've seen a, a change in the way curators are actually trained and skilled uh, for this particular job. And then leading on from that, um, you know, perhaps you can then introduce us to how you got involved in the Tending Nature and Tending the Wild projects. Sure. Um, in terms of being agents of social change, I think that um, people really have to think about the important role that museums can play in um, that informal learning that I mentioned, but also those really trusted sources of information. Interestingly, there um, have been studies conducted that show that um, people believe what they learn in a museum even more so than what they read in a newspaper, for example. And that's really great for museums, but it's also a huge responsibility because it also means that curators are the ones that are responsible for conveying what the public walks away with, what they take away with, what's supplementing what they're learning in the classroom or elsewhere out in the world. Um, and so because of that, curators have also started to change. This is part of our um, kind of reflective history of our discipline, because for you know really long time, even farther back than a century, you think back to some of the Euro European institutions that have been around for several hundreds of years, for example, um, a curator had a very particular position. It was one that was seen as a figure of authority. It was a very scholarly position, um, often really grounded in the academic framework. And in about the 1960s, we enter a period that we refer to in museum studies as the new museology. Um, we start to think about museums being a little bit less of this ivory tower, single focus academic voice, and more as places for community, places that incorporate the visitor experience, places that start to incorporate the perspectives um, of whose objects are shown in these galleries. So really in the past few decades, I think we start to see a little bit of a shift. Um, you know, there's still very many institutions that rely on more academic oriented curators, but there are also a lot where the curator is more of a storyteller and a facilitator and exhibits are done with multiple voices, not just one academic voice, working with community partners, um, but also making sure that those community partners have an equal say in the decision making. If you're working with an indigenous co-curator, for example, and they have a request that a certain object not be on display or a certain label be written in a different way, then it's important to, to honor that and actually make sure that their um, suggestions and perspective is taken into account. So I think we're starting to see more of this. Uh, one really great example of an institution that's really embraced uh, decolonizing practice is the San Diego Museum of Man, for example. They're actually thinking about changing their name. I'm not sure when that's gonna officially happen, but I know they have a campaign right now um, to even think about uh, rebranding their presence and kind of moving away from even a very colonial name of their institution that's existed since uh, the early 1900s. And, um, you know, they've actually sort of moved away from that role of curator and um, embraced this role of what they call content developers, someone that draws information from multiple sources, not just academic knowledge, but community knowledge, but oral history. So I think we're going to see more curators doing that uh, moving forward. 
in terms of my own journey as a curator, a lot of that was grounded in my own training in museum studies, uh, being very focused on working with communities on decolonizing practice. I actually wrote my museum studies master's thesis on um, basket collections in particular, uh, California Indian baskets. But the focus of the thesis was how museums can care for them, incorporating both practical care, but also cultural care. So, so much of that thesis revolved around kind of the other side of looking at how you would care for a basketry collection. Um, some community members request that there be uh, cornmeal offerings left with baskets or sage be burned in the collection storage. And, you know, the traditional collections manager or conservator is probably thinking, how could I ever, you know, set something on fire in my collections facility? That's someone's worst nightmare. But if it's more important to the cultural care of that basket, then the museum can find a way to you know, burn that sage, to leave that offering. Um, so many community members think of these objects as living things, as living entities. So we've even started to move away from using the word artifact, for example, because that sounds um, very stagnant. It doesn't really embody what it means for the community. Um, so that's really involved, uh, shaped um, the involvement with my work with the communities, um, how I approach developing exhibits, how I advocate for cultural collections care, um, and then, you know, a big part of working on these exhibits also led to this media partnership with KCET, um, the Tending the Wild and Tending Nature documentaries stemmed from ways we could tell stories in exhibits and realizing that um, we needed the faces and the voices of the community themselves to help tell these stories, to have a visitor come walk through the exhibit and be able to watch a media piece rather than just having that existing in uh, label text on the wall. Um, so I think that's a big part of um, my work as a curator as well, as thinking about how can we tell these stories in multiple ways, but those stories should originate from the community itself. So you've, you've already alluded to the fact that film and a contemporary visual narrative of current Indigenous communities uh, living within the Bay Area um, needed to be a part of how the museum envisaged decolonizing, uh, quote-unquote, the, the artifact of the other. And as you've said, you're moving away from this terminology of uh, static um, objects because these are, in fact, uh, part living parts of an ongoing historical narrative, uh, which exists still today. So I'd like to ask if you can elaborate a little further on the importance of bringing a contemporary voice into dialogue with a historical narrative and the role that you see film specifically uh, playing in this connection for people. I think a lot of people uh, battle to visually connect um, or to spatially connect or even relationally connect the past uh, with the present. And as you alluded to earlier, a lot of adults walk into museums and believe that there are no indigenous peoples left within the Bay Area. So how have these contemporary voices um, served to demonstrate an ongoing historical narrative um, that that not only never left the Bay Area, but that is also thriving in, in our current day and age. Certainly. And um, I think you raised a really good point about um, sort of the power of 
visual narrative um, because people learn in multiple learning styles. Um, a lot of people are visual learners and auditory learners. Um, we learn something very differently, um, either watching it as a media piece or listening to someone's voice telling you a story rather than just reading a book, for example, or reading a paragraph long label on the wall of a museum exhibition. Um, the majority of visitors are only going to read a tiny fraction of your label text anyway. So the power of media as a storyteller, as a way to help convey information, really is indisputable. Um, the ability to see the faces of contemporary community members, um, you know, some of them may be very traditional, but then um, quite a few are also just living the same lives as you and I and everyone here. So watching a media piece of an indigenous person here in the Bay Area, for example, where they're wearing a T-shirt, they're holding an iPhone. I mean, that is immediately going to get across that notion of we are still here way more so than you're going to get it from reading a label, for example. Um, so I think media really helps connect visitors to communities. It's also a way that people are used to experiencing content in today's day and age. We think of how much is communicated through social media. Um, so much is, you know, reliant on how we experience things on our smartphones. So, you know, building technology and media into a museum experience is something we need to be doing anyway. But in terms of the power of storytelling and how it can help really reinforce um, the content contemporary, ongoing nature of communities and traditions is really important. So I'd like to ask next, uh, what are some of the other projects that you personally would like to see curated uh, moving forward? Projects that you believe will truly contribute to decolonizing the traditional narrative that has previously been perpetuated by museums of the pre-modern um, so-called native other? Sure, I think um, there's you know, a lot of different projects that um, can help uh, address this issue and um, really help place indigenous communities in, in the present and also in the future. Uh, you know, one example from my uh, current institution, the Global Museum, is our most recent exhibition called Climate Stories focuses on the impacts of climate change on indigenous communities. This was a really important story to tell, uh, not only at a university campus, um, because I think we can really reach a certain audience, then you might uh, be able to in either another type of institution or a museum that existed in a place outside of the Bay Area. We didn't need to spend any time, for example, um, feeling that we had to explain climate change. We just sort of dove right in. But even something like climate change that's been on the forefront of everyone's minds, there's been so much in the news. Um, you know, people are thinking about climate change, thinking about ways that they can communicate it with their children, with their families. But even climate change impacts people disproportionately. So that was a really important aspect of this exhibit is that it focused on the indigenous presence. Um, sort of a side of talking about the issue of climate change that um, not a lot, other, a lot of people think about and not a lot of other uh, museum exhibits have addressed. So um, I think bringing in new perspectives, um, but also not only new exhibits that are developed by Indigenous community members and Indigenous curators, but also re-examining existing ones. We're starting to see this at some institutions. Um, for example, the American Museum of Natural History in New York City is one that, um, you know, has 
these very old displays, you know, their their Hall of Northwest Coast Peoples was curated by Franz Boas, uh, the quote unquote father of anthropology in the 1890s. And that hall wasn't officially closed until about two years ago, where they started to undertake a massive multi-million dollar renovation, really for the first time with a host of Native um, community advisors, curators, um, people working on the exhibition. Um, they're also starting to take a critical look at some of their dioramas, for example. Rather than just covering it up or taking it down, there's a great example of a huge diorama, one of the first ones you see when you walk into the lobby, um, where they've put on on the, the plexiglass um, a vinyl sticker that just says, reconsidering this scene. And then there's quotes and there's perspectives from uh, multiple Native advisors that um, kind of challenge that colonial gaze of that diorama. Um, there's also a big display around the Theodore Roosevelt statue, which is one that a lot of people have called for the removal, for example. Um, without actually taking it down, they've created this, this big display with dialogue from a lot of community members weighing in on their perspectives on the statue. So I think for these existing exhibits and displays, museums need to just be more transparent about their past, start acknowledging their colonial legacies to their publics, what it means for the future, what it means for communities now. Um, and the last thing I'd like to see in terms of projects and museums are more interdisciplinary connections. I'd love to see art museums have a little more historical context, for example. Um, but on the flip side, I'd love to see more contemporary art in history museums, more intersections between art and science, um, something like tending nature and tending the wild, for example. Nature and culture are so intersected. So why not bring in more of that content um, to institutions rather than just sticking so rigidly to I'm an art museum, I'm a history museum, I'm a science museum, for example. So I think museums have some great potential um, for projects moving forward, just new ways of thinking about um, how we present history to the public, whose voice is told in an exhibition, um, whose voice is at the table. And I'm excited to see what museums do in the decades moving forward. I really love uh, what you had to say about um, the need for more of an interdisciplinary approach, but also um, this whole issue that you're addressing of not necessarily erasing the ills of the past, um, but in a sense, leaving them there for the next generation to see, uh, this is how we used to think, this is how we used to approach the world, and we don't deem that to be appropriate anymore. And these are now the new voices that are contributing to a future narrative. One of the criticisms that I've had um, coming from a country like South Africa of our cultural establishments is um, that there was such a sensitivity around decolonizing cultural spaces that a lot of uh, past historical narrative was simply erased in an attempt to, to, to sort of right the wrongs of the past. Uh, and I think that that's sort of very dangerous in a sense that you're also erasing um, the ills that were done and the historical trajectory that led to the development of those types of sort of racist um, and bigotry thinking. And, and so I'm much more in favor of, of an approach um, that faces a, a general challenge that raises itself again and again in society, no matter what 
time period or era or age we're in that faces that head on and that encourages an open dialogue between all parties. Definitely, I completely agree with you. So Paige, lastly, um, I'd like to ask how you see museums transforming in, in times like these, um, in these sort of very disruptive mo- moments uh, where social space um, is, is literally emptied out um, of those that come uh, to partake in it uh, and to share ideas within it. So what role do you see museums and curators playing in, in the ongoing process of, of cultural bridging and community building uh, in a world where the physical space itself um, can't always serve as the center for this dialogue? That's a really great question. And, you know, certainly the past few months um, have been a big challenge for the museum field. Museums are grappling with some really difficult decisions of having to furlough or lay off staff, um, have having, you know, huge deficits in their budgets. And um, we all need to kind of be thinking right now about museum professional as museum professionals about, you know, how can we how can we pivot and and adapt and be really flexible and resilient? Because the history of museums has shown that we can't always just cling to the old way because museums are constantly growing and evolving and changing spaces. And, you know, for anyone that's worried that, well, if we're doing this big focus on online exhibitions and putting our collections on social media, then, you know, are people going to even want to come back to our spaces once they reopen? And the answer is definitely yes. You know, we can have both. And I think even when our spaces do start to reopen again, when things get a little better when things are safer, we're still going to need to sort of rethink um, how we pack our exhibitions. Are we going to have these big blockbuster shows, for example? Are we going to have to think about timed entry? Um, how do we conduct docent-led tours, especially since docents tend to be um, an older age group? So we're, we're, we as a community are working through a lot of these decisions right now. But I think no matter what, once our spaces reopen, we're also going to continue this digital presence. And, you know, the one advantage to what's going on right now is that we're starting to broaden our reach to outside of the museum walls. Um, We're shifting to new ways to telling stories and within that new narrative. So I want that community curation to continue. Um, That can happen digitally just as well as it can um, for an exhibit that's going to be inside the museum. So thinking about new online exhibit projects, um, new classroom resources for K through 12 teachers, that you know, is also going to require the co-curation with Indigenous community members, um, but also providing more opportunities for the next generation to be involved, Um, getting students involved, um, even at the undergraduate level, for example, ways for um, them to learn new skills, for ways for stories from community members um, to be included. All of that can also live digitally. So I think there's going to be a lot of changes moving forward. There won't be any substitute for visiting our institutions in person, but a lot of this decolonizing practice can still continue to exist digitally because however we convey our information, whether that's through a website or an in-person exhibit experience, um, we need to be thinking about these questions and issues. Great. And, and I suppose there's also a discussion within that, um, you know, broader debating of uh, does the exhibition always need to be in the actual museum or can we use this, this sort of 
uh, new opportunity uh, within the framework of digital platform uh, to create uh, more regionally and more globally. Exactly, exactly. And the potential to reach new audiences is huge because someone that may not have been able to come to the museum in the first place is now um, able to experience it from across the country or across the world. Yeah, and I also hear you saying that, you know, we started this conversation with you saying that um, where we need to start the changes in the way we teach history in the classroom. And you seem to be indicating that this also provides an opportunity for the museum to be engaged in the classroom um, alongside this new way of teaching history to the next generation. Certainly. And I know that um, a lot of classroom teachers right now are looking to museums to help um, provide additional materials for, you know, how they can teach their students if they're teaching over Zoom right now, or even if they're thinking about, well, when I do put my classroom back together in person again, you know, how else can I enhance their experience? And um, museums can play a huge role in that. Um, but it has to come from museums that have embraced um the legacy of their history is acknowledging that some things need to change and we can move very positively forward if we integrate these decolonizing practices. Well, thank you, Paige, so much for having this discussion with me today. I really appreciate it. And it was very refreshing. Uh, and it was really nice to think about museums as alternative cultural spaces. And I wish you a good day further. Thanks so much. And thank you for having me.